3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to Elders, past and present, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement, and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everyone, you're listening to CR. How are we all? Pretty good today. How yeah. are you, Grace? Good, good. Uh, apologies for last week, but it's all good. <laughs> I mean, I'm still there, but not physically there, but it's all good. I'm here um, now. How was, your, how was the AI show? I heard a bit of it. It was quite good. Excellent. Yeah, very, yeah very well no, we covered lots of different areas. Uh, we had uh, Sonera talking about uh, the use of AI in defence mm-hmm. and uh, I was uh, interviewing an expert on AI in healthcare and Pat uh, dealing with media. And AI in media with uh, Samantha Floretti. So a uh, big shout out to her. She's put a bit of a pump up on the socials about it, which is great. And um, if those listening want to go back to the AI special, they can on Wednesday breakfast on the podcast, 3cr.org.au. Go to podcasts, go to Wednesday breakfast. You can listen to all the breakfasts from this year if you want to just recap what's happened from January to now. It's always good fun to, to just go back in time. <laughs> Speaking of AI, um, I'm going to continue the theme a bit more uh, and just uh, delve into um, some of the AI developments in healthcare, particularly in breast cancer detection today with um, Professor Christabel Saunders um, from Melbourne Uni. So stay tuned for that. What Excellent. else do we have coming up? Uh, we'll be speaking to uh, Brie Aherns at 8.10 uh, from the Northern Territory. She'll be speaking, uh, she's from the NT Environmental Centre and we'll be speaking regard, we'll be speaking about the Beetaloo Gas Project, uh, which has been a massive project which is going ahead even though there's been backlash uh, by both the, by the opposition in the NT and also uh, by environmental groups. They're concerned that it's going to be a, a, a one to cause a massive environmental disaster, but there's also... Uh, a, another aspect of it in terms of bad governance uh, done by the uh, NT Labor government. And I'll be talking to Dilnaz Bilamoria, a Mumbai-born Australian working in the community sector, and uh, she'll be talking about the access to information on the voice uh, referendum for migrant groups in Melbourne and the way in which they are engaging with the forthcoming uh, referendum. That's amazing. And for me, I'm going to be starting off the show of the day with Oscar Davis, who was who is, is an associate professor of philosophy and history at Bond University. We're going to be discussing a very interesting concept of what makes a good life and existentialism. So, yeah. Looking forward to that one. I read that article in the conversation yesterday. Yes. It was uh, really interesting. Yeah. Uh, we often, you know, hear about these philosophical 
um, mm. theories and, you know, they can sound quite abstract or difficult to relate to, but uh, it was very accessible and uh, really got you thinking. So, yeah, looking forward to, to that one. Thank you. And on to headlines. Yep, so from me, 18 bodies have been found in the wildfire zone in northeast of Greece. The bodies of 18 people have been found there where firefighters have been battling a major wildfire, according to authorities. As record-breaking late summer heat waves continue to sway many parts of Europe, hundreds of firefighters were just struggling yesterday to contain the dozen of outbreaks because it still wasn't fully put out yet, including several that have been burnt out of control for days and forced widespread evacuations. And this is con- and this is in the second deadly wave of places in Greece in a month. The bodies were found near Avanta area, which is north of the city of Alexandropolis, near Greece's border with Turkey and Bulgaria. And a disaster victim identification team was working to identify all these victims. And Japan is set to begin discharging treated nuclear waste from the Fukushima number one nuclear plant as early as tomorrow, the Japan Times has reported. The release of waste has been highly contentious with international and domestic fishery industry bodies, residents, anti-nuclear lobbyists and even citizen mothers' groups vehemently opposing the move. Japan's seafood industry has suffered reputational damage since the Fukushima nuclear plant exploded in 2011. China bans seafood imports from 10 prefectures in Japan, including Fukushima and the capital Tokyo. Activists in South Korea have also protested the decision to release the wastewater. 1.3 million tonnes of water will be gradually poured into the ocean through an underwater tunnel. The water will be cleansed of all its radioactive material except tritium. Tritium levels will be thinned down to 1 40th of the concentration allowed by Japanese standards. The United Nations nuclear watchdog, the International Atomic Energy Agency, has approved the plan stating it meets international standards and will have a negligible impact on people and the environment. And now on to important domestic news. The date for the Voice to Parliament referendum will be announced by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese at the end of next week in South Australia. Albanese's announcement will mark the start of a six-week-long campaign for the referendum, which is expected to be on October 14th. South Australia was chosen to be the launch date because it is believed that the state will be decisive in determining the majority vote, according to multiple government sources. And now... In the world of journalism, Stan Grant resigns from ABC for a position with Monash University. Following his departure from Q&A due to online abuse and racism, Grant will become the Asia-Pacific director of the Denmark-based Constructive Institute that's based in the university. Director of News Analysis and Investigations of ABC, Justin Stevens, says that the role clearly aligns with Stan's desire to lead the lead a conversation in Australian, Australian media and how media can foster a more constructive and kinder discourse. And finally, a parliamentary inquiry into last year's Victoria flood disaster heads to Rochester in Echuca 10 months after the floods, with many residents still displaced. The Parliamentary Inquiry will conduct public hearings in Rochester and Echuca this week, with the inquiry forming a review into last year's flood crisis, which saw hundreds of homes and businesses in the town of Rochester 
were ruined and many of the town's more than 3,000 residents were, di- were displaced. And that's your news for this Wednesday morning. Awesome. We're going to be heading into a song. Next up, we're going to be talking about what makes a good life. This is called Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Marley. partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. 
joined generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals, together with Australian unionists and activists in the Solidarity Movement, for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music. On Monday, September 11, from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall. This event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter. Kafirs are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. Kafirs are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafirs.org.au that's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S dot org day. 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Ross House has community meeting rooms available for hire at subsidised rates. Perfect for small meetings, student study groups, Zoom conferencing and seminars. Facilities include free Wi-Fi, display screens for presentations, projector and sound system and a Zoom conferencing system. HEPA filter units have been placed in every meeting room. You can book and pay via their website, rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650-1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Apologies for all the delays, but we are, I think we should be all good now. So this is something that we've been pondering on a lot, and many of us, we yearn for what makes a good life. So I'm going to be speaking to Oscar Davis, who is an Associate Professor of Philosophy and History at Bonn University, where we discuss what makes a good life and the concept of existentialism. Good morning, Oscar. Good morning. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Awesome. So Oscar, can we just first get to understand a bit about what is Aristotle's philosophy of a good life? And first, what, what should we understand? Yeah, sure. So... Yeah, I guess Aristotle's story of, of moral philosophy is a really important one because it's it's the first time in the West, at least in, in, as in, in Western philosophy, mm. that an entire work was dedicated to the subject of ethics. So this, this, this comes in his book, Nicomachean Ethics. And I guess his big contribution, um, and it's, it's the first line of his book, is that everything we do you know, and everything we think about seems to aim at some sort of good, right? And, and this is the, it's called teleology, I guess the ends-based kind of thinking that eventually would um, become quite popular um, due to Thomas Aquinas. 
Mm. He, he says, you know, we can think about what makes a good thing by determining, I guess, what it is that we're talking about. This is a really important way of thinking. And I use the example of the knife um, in that article is that if we want to talk about a good or a bad knife, you know, we need to understand what is the essence of a knife? What is it actually for? And of course, we once we decide, well, a knife is to cut things, we can start saying, well, a good knife then must be a sharp one. And we can apply this this way of thinking to, you know, what makes a good parent or what makes a good friend, what mm. makes a good lawyer. So, you know, by systematically thinking about what the essential features of a thing is, we can go on to make claims about what makes a good one or a bad one. And I think this is you know, the, the great contribution of Aristotle. And he, he then directs this question at the human soul. So what is it that truly makes us different to everything else? And we are more than beings that just want to grow or reproduce, right? We can reason, Aristotle says. Mm. And so if we want to live good, flourishing lives, we need to begin our ethics, you know, our study of how to live good lives from this fact that we must exercise our reason. You know, that's the thing that really makes us special as a species, as far as we know. And we must exercise that reason in accordance with virtue, he says. And so, yeah, that's that's Aristotle's philosophy of, of the good life. Mm, that's very interesting. And then now coming into this concept of existentialism, what, what, does, what does that mean in regards to Aristotle's philosophy? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess the particular kind of existentialism that I'm referring to is, is Jean-Paul Sartre, Mm-hmm. And particularly a lecture which was given in 1945, right? So he's, um, it's at a pretty important time in history and thousands have packed into this hall, right? It would have been like the Taylor Swift concert of Paris in 1945. He was, everyone wanted to be there. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the stories we get is that, you know, people were sitting on the stairs and everything. They wanted to see Jean-Paul Sartre dispel some myths about this, this philosophy that had been getting around for a while now called existentialism. Mm. And Sartre Sartre kicks off the lecture talking about, well, what I'm talking about is not some bourgeois and nihilist way of thinking. It's a deeply human um, and deeply, it's relevant to all of us, you know, this way of thinking about how we should live our lives. And an important part of that lecture, and the bit I thought draws quite a nice contrast with Aristotle's notion of essence and purpose, is that... um, Sartre thinks it's completely the opposite way around, right? Mm. He he wants to start from the fact that it's a condition of our existence, you know, our, our very being, that we are fundamentally free. And what he means here is that we have so many choices to make, um, and every day we have to make thousands of them. And all of these choices are kind of a source of anguish for us. Like it's something that, you know, this is the existential crisis, is that we always have to figure out and decide who we are and what we're doing. It's kind of exhausting, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, the, I guess the psychological aspect of existentialism is that what they believe is that we often find ways to try and escape this anguish. So I, I like to call these existentialist escape tactics, right? And mm-hmm. one escape tactic in, in Sartre's language is when we deny our ability to transcend our in an imminent tra- situation, right? So... Mm-hmm. We come to tell ourselves that we don't really have a choice, for example, that our work or maybe we believe in fate or we have these deep obligations to another person. And these things mean that we must act one way or another. 
Now, in a, in a practical sense, this might sometimes be true, but what Sartre thinks is that more often than not, we're using an escape tactic here to escape that anguish of having to choose for ourselves. And he gives that example of a waiter. You know, it's quite a, a an often cited example from Sartre. And he's look, he's watching a waiter one day walking walk around this cafe in Paris, and he notices that the waiter is just moving too perfectly, right? He's moving too quickly. He's standing up a little too straight. Um, he's doing everything too waiterly, you know? It's almost like he's given up his identity as a human and wanted to take on this identity of a waiter. I guess Sartre's concern here is that this might extend to certain situations when we take on a role of responsibility to the extent that we come to deny our own individuality and perhaps even our humanity, right? And I guess in the lecture where this is surfacing for Sartre is that in dominant religions um, or even philosophies, mm. we might appeal to a divine law or to a philosopher from the 17th century to define who we are and what we should be. And this is what is inauthentic, Sartre says. We must, at the end of the day, decide our own lives uh, for ourselves. And so we are fully responsible for meaning in our lives in the sense that we have no predefined essence, mm. uh, you know, contra Aristotle, from which we can infer what we ought to do. You know, we have to invent ourselves first, and, and that is our meaning and purpose. And that's what he means by, I guess, living authentic and free lives. Mm. So, and I guess with that, 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 there's obviously a difference in regards to authenticity and obviously uh, eudaimonia, which is the meaning of highest, highest human good. So, mm, mm, mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a, a, another way to bring out that contrast. I guess Aristotle says we're aiming at eudaimonia, you know, this flourishing in the sense of what you are. Mm. Right? It's a, it's a um, you know, fulfilling the essence of what makes you unique. You know, that flourishing knife is a sharp one. A flourishing human is virtuous. You know, they're using their capacity to reason to balance virtue. And they're striving to be courageous and benevolent and caring. But finding that golden mean through the application of careful thinking. That's how we avoid doing anything in excess or having a deficiency of virtue. Um, and that's how, at the end of the day, we're going to live flourishing lives is by constantly applying reason to, you know, the habits we are forming and, and the people that we are. But yeah, Sartre is coming along and saying, no, we must have the courage to decide for ourselves mm. when, we are, when we face difficult choices. You know, he uses this example of a student who comes up to him after a lecture and asks him, you need to help me decide, you know, should I go off to war and, and help the Allied forces or should I stay home and care for my mother? You know, it's a, it's a life-defining decision. I need your help, you know, and... Sartre says, look, you know, there's no philosophy that could help you here. Um, nothing I can say can, can push you either way. The only thing that matters is that you make a decision for yourself and that when you make that choice, it's authentically your own. You know, you can't say I made this choice because, you know, Immanuel Kant says it's what I ought to do, right? And so the choice must be fully ours. That is what defines us and that is what is an authentic choice. And that's how you, I guess, safeguard that freedom that defines your humanity for such. Mm. Mm. That is very interesting. And since we've understand the whole point of make, what makes a good life is really embracing freedom and authenticity oh. and everything, 
but obviously at the end, I guess a lot of people have very different opinions in what they define of meaning have a good life, even if they don't embrace this kind of philosophy, but maybe mm-hmm. they do without unknowingly. So what is your what is your definition of that in, <laughs> in regard when applying this philo- when you apply this philosophy? Sure. So so yeah, I am um, in the article I sort of I like to finish with a bit of Montaigne because mm. um Michel de Montaigne he he wrote these this book essays, you know, towards the end of his very busy political life. And it's hard to pin down any kind of distinct philosophy in Montaigne. But I think that's precisely his point and why he is a nice middle ground there um, between Aristotle and, and Jean Paul Sartre. Because he's he's saying, look, my philosophy is in living. It's in every single art or everything that I'm doing, everything that I'm thinking about um, defines me. You know, and I think mm. there's this saying, um, you know, you can you find it all over the place, written on like a fridge or something, you know, the way we live our days is how we live our lives. And I think that's quite um, something Montaigne would have really believed in. It's not, you know, thinking too much about our predefined essence or our, you know, the anguish of our freedom. It's mm. just, yeah, how we fill our days and what we choose to engage in the people we choose to be with um, and what we choose to think about, I guess these are the things which at the end of the day end up defining who we are. And that's where our purpose and happiness springs from, I think. Mm, That is amazing. I think for me, what makes a good life is, I mean, in very short words, I guess just being happy. (laughs) So like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we want to yeah, talk another so like, story. yeah, like like Epicurus says that you know, just let's just try to be happy. Let's not set any, the bar too high. Let's just. But yeah, I think just what makes a good life for me is yeah, just being happy. And I I definitely agree a lot in the sense of the purpose and the freedom and authenticity is something mm. we really need to embrace. And yeah, I and I agree with Montaigne as well. Like sometimes we we don't know what we want to choose, and sometimes we we can't really decide so i guess at the end of the day it's just really seeing how we decide for ourselves what's best for us so yeah mm-hmm. that's very interesting yeah. unfortunately we are running out of time already but mm-hmm. thank you so much for joining us on the show oh, thank you thank you and it's just just been very amazing it's, it's very interesting of what you've wrote about this article uh, thank you very much thanks for having me awesome thank you oscar great all right thank you cheers that was Oscar Davis, the Associate Professor of Philosophy and History at Bonn University, where we discuss what makes a good life and the, consistent, and the concept of existentialism. Patrick, I'm going to have to throw you off on this a bit, uh, <laughs> but what makes a good life for you? I just want to get that out from you. Uh, coffee, I think. That, that's always <laughs> a good thing. Good life, good coffee, good food, good people. Uh, those are the things that I love, and that's what makes a good life. Um, if you're not having good food and good people, then... It's not always a good thing, and I recommend that for listeners out there. Get a get your family around, cook a lovely roast, a curry, I don't know, just something, and it's always a good thing. Gets you excited uh, is the best way I can say. Home-cooked home home meal is the best thing you can have to, to a good life. Grace? Mm. How are you, Sina? How is it like for you? Um, I'd have to agree with Patrick. Um, <laughs> I love coffee as well, and um, also yeah, family and food uh, yeah. as well. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, more than success, I think, um, having good people around you, um, 
is the key to a good life. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. How about you, Claudia? What makes a good life for you? Well, I definitely think relationships are very important. If you don't have a deep connection with your fellow human beings, whether they be family or people you work with, or、mm. then life tends to be a bit superficial. But I also think it's really important to have a sense of purpose in what you do. And I think if you have a sense of purpose in everything you do. Then you know whether it's a small act or a project, then you feel connected, and that gives your life meaning. And yeah, I think that's it's very part、deep. of a, a healthy very deep value. <laughs> <Yeah> . <laughs> Too deep for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, but it's good though. I like it. I like it. Get the listeners thinking this morning, which is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, and obviously with everything we also discussed about embracing freedom or authenticity, I think we all just embraced all of these ideas that we unknowingly know of. But that is the key to a good life because it's drama-free, positive, and it's something we all want. You know, who everyone wants freedom. Everyone wants a chill and happy, free life. For、mm. me, that's for me. Freedom is so important for me because I feel like I didn't get that a lot. Especially com- com- growing, up. I mean, I felt like I didn't get a lot of freedom of what I see from other people as growing up in a strict,、uh, strict Asian family. So it's like, yeah, maybe another prompt we could throw out is what is freedom as well, because、mm. I, I suspect that means different things to different people. That is true. Big one. We'll have to leave that for another day. I think. <laughs> yes, yes, that's a chat for another day. I've got a feeling. Yep. Well, stay tuned.、Uh, we're Take a little break now, but、uh, we'll be back talking with Dilnaz Bilamoria about the migrant communities' interactions with the Voice referendum. Yep. So we're going to go into a song. This is called "Never Fade Away" by Blocking Brown, featuring Wick It.
The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals, together with Australian unionists and activists in the Solidarity Movement, for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music. On Monday, September 11, from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall, this event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR Breakfast with Claudia, Grace, Sonera and Patrick. Our next guest is Dilnaz Bilamoria a Mumbai-born Australian working in the community sector. Dilnaz currently serves on the Committee of Communities Council on Ethnic Issues, which represents multicultural communities in Melbourne's eastern metropolitan region. She's here this morning to discuss how migrant communities are engaging with the referendum on a voice to parliament and the work she is doing to ensure accessibility of accurate information. Good morning, Dilnaz. Good morning, Claudia, Sonera and Patrick. How are you today? Dunas, it's lovely to have you. And can you tell us, just to start off, a bit about yourself and how sure. it's brought you to this place working with diverse communities? Thank you very much for having me on 3CR um, on a cold and, and chilly morning. Um, and I hope that our conversation warms the hearts of all Australians and that we do the right thing by our Indigenous brothers and sisters. But what brought me to this actually is the fact that I am from India, as you introduced me, from Mumbai, and I belong to a very ancient faith called the Zoroastrian faith that not many may have heard of. And the interesting thing is that we originally, you know, thousands of years ago, we're the oldest monoistic faith in the world, predating Christianity, uh, uh, Judaism, all the Abrahamic faith. And it was a very successful Persian empire, as many of you would have read through history, um, very welcoming to all cultures, all faiths, etc. And then with the, with great respect, I say this, but with the um, rollout of the Islamic culture across many parts of the world, um, a lot of the Zoroastrians converted. But the story gets interesting because a small group of, um, of um, Zoroastrians wanted to hold on to their faith. So they got onto boats and decided to sail out and seek um, refuge. So we're actually the first recorded boat people in the world, if one may put it that way. And we happened to reach the coast of Western India. The king, the Raja, and his um, group of people sheltered, repaired the sailboats, etc., but then asked for us to leave, as would be expected from their side, because we were strangers and we looked different and we spoke different. So our elders actually asked for a cup of milk and a spoonful of sugar. And they requested for the sugar to be added to the milk and not a drop of milk was spilled. And they said, that's what we would do as Zoroastrians. We would be the sugar to the milk of India and we would never spill a drop of blood. And then the elder gave the king the glass of milk to drink and the milk was sweet. And he said, that's what we will do to the culture of India. We will sweeten it. And I'm happy to say, Claudia, Sonera and Patrick, that um, thousands of years later, we have still kept this promise 
We've lived peacefully within the Indian diaspora, and we have hopefully made the culture sweeter with education, engagement, philanthropy, charity, etc. So I think that's a good story for people to know that everyone is welcome, and we must respect those who have been on the land for that many thousands of years. Absolutely. So that's my story to start the morning. Thank <laughs> you for sharing. That's a beautiful story and the message uh, in that story speaks very widely, uh, I'm sure, to many communities and goes to the essence of why we must celebrate and uh, value all contributions in this land. We'll come shortly to the value and importance of uh, Indigenous voices, but I wanted to hear first about the communities that you support at the Committee of Communities Council on Ethnic Issues and also the diversity because when we talk about migrant communities, we obviously um, are referencing people who have come to Australia from different places um, and for different reasons, but there's a huge intersectionality you know, within all these different cultural and ethnic groups as well. So diversity is has diversity within it. Yes, you're absolutely right. And um, I have to actually say that I don't work in this sector. I actually work in banking and finance. And I volunteer in the sector of intersectionality of health, education, employment, engagement, um, you know, settlement of um, different communities from across the world. And I actually found that while I was working in the front office in, in the banking sector, I started noticing that Australia was looking different. You know, people who would come to me in the bank would be from all parts of the world, um, including, you know, fifth generation Australian. And they would be talking with someone who had come to this country. And over my 22 years of living in this beautiful um you know, lucky country, I have to say that within each group, the diversity, as you rightly said, is immense. So if we look at the Indian diaspora, we have the intersectionality of faith within the diaspora. So we have Hindus, Muslims, Christians, Sikhs, etc., and Zoroastrians, of course. When we look at the intersectionality of education, people come with different levels of education. People come with different social backgrounds. People come from you know, areas that have been peaceful, but people also come from areas that have been in strife. So when we look at the migrant community, uh, unfortunately, one label or one size does not fit all. And that's something that Australia has to remember when they're designing policies and you know, um, uh, strategies for good assimilation of migrants. And how does this vast difference of experience impact the way in which migrant communities think about Australia's First Nations people? Yeah, and I think um, that is the crux of today's conversation, you know, our chat. It's, it's often that many migrant communities sadly say that they have never met someone from the um, First Nations communities. And because our First Nations communities themselves have so much of diversity within them, often one cannot look at someone and make an assumption that they are or are not from the First Nations communities. So what we do through the Communities Council on Ethnic Issues and all the other different 
you know, organizations across hospitals, health sector, local government, um, interfaith networks, um, you know, social justice, health justice partnerships like Eastern Community Legal Center. What we do is we're trying to, not just now, um, Claudia, but over the years, we always have a smoking ceremony to start with in many of our events so that a lot of the migrant communities actually turn around and tell me, oh, but we have this in our countries too. So many faiths have a, the similarity of a smoking ceremony to purify your heart, your mind, the land, your house, you know, your business. Um, a lot of times they look at some of the customs and say, oh, but we have this too. So we want to be able to show that our First Nations um, brothers and sisters who have looked after this land for us for thousands of years, they are the same people in Australia that we are and that we have so much of commonality between um, our different cultures, faiths and traditions. Yes, you recently uh, wrote uh, that you find these similarities between First Peoples and your own cultures yes. and faith as migrants. Um, what are some of the other ways in which you resonate with the experience of First Nations sure. people? So actually, it's an interesting story because my husband and I, most unexpectedly, did quite a strenuous hike of the Kimberleys we were there for 13 days. Um, we covered between the truck and walking, you know, about 3,500 kilometers. We did all the gorges and chasms and, you know, mountains and everything. And it was it was terrifying and it was wonderful. But while we were there, we were able to speak to a lot of our, um, the, a lot of the local indigenous communities. For example, we had a really good chat with Uncle Moses, who was in his late 80s, early 90s. And he said something which is exactly what migrant communities, and for that matter, all Australians look for. He said, you know what, Sister Donas, I look for education for my young people so that they are able to do what they want in this world. I look for employment for my people so that they are able to have the dignity of work and they are able to, um, you know, have a roof over their head and food on the table. And I look for engagement for my community so that they can engage with within themselves, with their mobs, but also with wider Australians. And you know what, Claudia, that's exactly what migrants ask for. And I call it the three E's of successful migration, which is, of course, education, employment and engagement. And I told him, I said, that's exactly what we look for when we come to this country. And he said, isn't that strange? But not so, that we all want the same thing for our families, for our communities and for society. And now turning to the voice itself, working in your volunteer capacity through the council, um, what are you observing as you meet and listen to individuals of multi-faith and multicultural migrant backgrounds in terms of both their awareness of the voice itself and the ways in which they're engaging with the referendum? So it is, uh, I have to be honest and say that a lot of migrant communities, you know, have a lot of priorities and pressures, paying the bills, you know, putting food on the table, um, seeing that the kids get education. So a lot of them, and because they haven't really met a lot of Indigenous people, or not at all sometimes, uh, many migrants initially told me that, how does this concern me? How does this affect me? You know, I'm 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 a migrant, I'm... A, doing it quite hard myself, trying to get ahead. Um, so how does this concern me? 
So I believe as a migrant woman of color, of faith, and as a community leader, that it is my responsibility and that of all of us. And the responsibility doesn't end with me. The responsibility ends with we, W-E, that's all of us, is to basically provide information in language, in English, to the migrant communities so that they are able to make an informed choice. So it's really important that we are able to share this information um, with the wider community, whether it's you know through physical leaflets and brochures. I have a wonderful brochure in front of me, which is beautifully illustrated and very simply stated called Recognizing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Peoples Through a Voice. And I'm very pleased that all our local libraries are um, having this poster. Um, it's there in local councils and government. It's there in so many different events that I go to. Um, it's got a beautiful illustration by an Aboriginal artist and a lot of information that's really clear. Um, similarly, we do have an organization called Life Without Barriers, and they've done some really good work. Um, they guide you to the National Indigenous Australian Agency if you want to look on the website um, about Voice to Parliament. Polaron has done fantastic work with translation into 45 languages. So literally from A to Z, you have languages that any community or faith group or cultural group can access. There's a toolkit, there are videos, um, there's a group called the Social Policy Group, which has been funded by the Australian Electoral Commission, by AEC, and they have information in languages. Um, many of these organizations, actually, Claudia, are happy to come to your community event or happy to come to the Faith Center or happy to come and wherever you want, you know, senior citizens, youth, um, to universities, to schools, and talk about this in any language or in any format that you want, so that I believe everyone has a right then to make an informed choice. And we know that during the COVID pandemic years that essential health information was not equally accessible by all communities. Do you feel that things are better uh, in terms of the information available to migrant communities in particular about the voice? Um, from what you're describing, it sounds like there is quite a lot of information that is out there. Do you feel um, that that's sufficient and it's actually reaching the communities? Um, so there is a lot of information. You're right to refer to COVID where we heard about all the um, kerfuffles with you know, language issues. And one which I always give an example of, the ad which went a shot in the arm. Now, a lot of migrant communities have come from places where they were shot full stop. Um, and when you say something like shot in the arm and it's translated into languages whereby it says get shot, it was extremely uh, distressful and extremely upsetting for migrant communities to see that, you know, slathered all over billboards and, and advertising. So, yes, in this case, we are getting the messaging right. The important thing is that we need to go out more into the community. I know that Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria is having town halls where they are inviting people to come and listen to why one should vote yes for the voice. Um, I know that Communities Council on Ethnic Issues, which is us, a small organization that punches above its pay grade in some ways, 
but we're doing the best we can. But we also need to go out into the wider community. I know that one of my colleagues on Interfaith, and I'm, I'm happy to say his name because he's doing great work. He's a Jewish gentleman, Abraham, and he's actually uh, going out into um, not just the synagogues, but he's going into Gurdwaras, which is the, you know, um, Sikh temple. He's going into Hindu temples. He's happy to go into Buddhist um, temples to be able to speak to communities. So I think all of us uh, migrants in this country have a huge responsibility that we should honor. And it's a privilege to be able to speak to others. And of course, wonderful people like y'all um, through 3CR who are giving um, you know migrant leaders and community leaders and faith leaders um, an opportunity to speak about why we should vote yes. And more important, an informed choice. Thank you very much. It's um, great to hear the the passion in your in your voice and <laughs> and know that uh, you're leading the dissemination of uh, information so that people do have the opportunity to make a, an informed choice. Thank you very much That's for me. joining us this morning. Um, we'll definitely put some of those information uh, links on our show notes for sure. listeners if they want to follow up with the uh, information that Dil Nez has uh, talked about. Thank you very much, Claudia. I'll sign off as Dil Bill. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Thank you. That was Dilna's Billamoria, member of the Committee of Communities, Council on Ethnic Issues, speaking about access to information on the voice referendum among Melbourne's migrant communities. And if you uh, are looking to find out more about the Committee of Communities, Council on Ethnic Issues, you can go to ccoei.org.au. And uh, as Dilnaz said, there are many places where you can find information on the voice in language, and we will put those on our show notes. The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals together with Australian unionists and activists in the Solidarity Movement for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music on Monday, September 11 from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall. This event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter. is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch.
The rated tussock is a noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grassland for many years. The Victorian serrated tussock working party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. Now, going on to the health world, um, specifically breast cancer, we could ask the question, could AI be useful in breast cancer detection? According to the World Health Organization, breast cancer is the most prevalent cancer worldwide. In Australia, 20,000 new breast cancers are diagnosed each year and around one in seven women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their life. It takes two radiologists to use mammograms to detect early stage breast cancer. With the rise of new technologies, including artificial intelligence, could it improve breast cancer detection for a workforce that's aging despite a growing population? To find out, I was joined by breast cancer researcher Professor Christabel Saunders from the University of Melbourne to talk about the impact of AI on the future of breast cancer research and treatment. Hi everyone, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and right now I'm joined by one of the most renowned research-oriented cancer surgeons, Professor Christabel Saunders, who is the head of the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne and consultant surgeon in the Department of General Surgery at Royal Melbourne Hospital and Peter McCallum Cancer Institute. Welcome to the show, Christabel. How are you? Oh, thanks for having me. I'm very well. Before we get into the pros and cons of using AI for breast cancer detection, um, I was wondering how AI-supported screen reading works to detect breast cancer in comparison to mammograms. Well, it's not in comparison to mammograms. What it is, is if you like an adjunct to both mammograms and also probably more importantly to the, those specialist doctors called radiologists who read the mammograms. So at the moment, you, you may be aware that all women over the age of 50 in this country are offered a two-yearly screening mammogram uh, to try to detect breast cancer early. And in fact, over the age of 40, you can request one. But when those mammograms are done, they're quite complicated things to look at. There, there are a series of x-rays which uh, need a real specialist eye to try to detect what are often very tiny abnormalities, which could turn out to be a cancer. And therefore, mammograms are always read by at least two consultant radiologists. And you can imagine that's a time-consuming process and one in an area where we actually don't have very much manpower. I'm sure you've all heard of the workforce shortages in medicine at the moment. So the idea is, can AI actually take the place of one of those doctors in reading the mammogram? So not get rid of doctors altogether, but take the place of one of the two. And also, actually, can it draw the eye of the radiologist to abnormalities that it can be taught to understand on the X-ray image? And... You know, before we get into, I was going to touch on uh, about the workforce sh shortages in uh, later on, but before we get into that, can you also tell us a bit about like the trial that was conducted in Sweden using this tool and what the researchers were testing? 
Yeah, sure. So this was a, a fairly large study. It, it was around 80,000 women participated in one area of Sweden. And what the researchers did was exactly what I've been talking about. They really wanted to know whether um, AI, so a machine learning program, a software program, could replace one of the two radiology screeners. So half of the women in the program had their mammograms read completely normally. And the other half, the first thing that happened was the AI software package looked at the mammogram. And if it looked like there was really something a bit strange about it, then it still went to those two human readers to have a good look at. But if it looked to the AI program like it was absolutely fine, then it would just go to one reading radiologist. Um, so saving, in fact, 44% of manpower hours, it saved over in that, that, that one program six months of, of work for radiologists. Um, and the other thing that it did, interestingly, was it really did draw the eye of radiologists to small abnormalities. So more cancers were picked up in the AI arm of the study. Yeah, as you mentioned, um, it it does detect more cancers, but apparently, you know, it detects the cancers that aren't really harmful and don't need to be diagnosed. In, uh, I've also read that, you know, it can lead to a risk of overdiagnosis. Can you explain how that might, if that might do more harm than good? Or I could be wrong about that too. So this study is actually the reports that we're getting at the moment from this study are what we call the interim results, so not the final results. So it's given us, if you like, a signal that maybe AI can be a useful tool. But the long-term results of the study are to look at something we call interval cancers. So those are cancers in women that pop up in between their two yearly screening mammograms. We know those cancers are often fast growing and nasty kind of cancers. So if you can cut the number of interval cancers down by picking things up much earlier than the human eye can see, then we think it could potentially translate into breast into improved survival rate from breast cancer. But we're a long way off knowing that yet. And the danger with picking more things up on any screening test, whether it's a mammogram, a blood test, a fecal occult blood test for colon screening, whatever it is, the danger of picking things up early is that they may actually turn out to be things that would never have harmed the patient in their lifetime. So they may be either precancerous lesions that never grow into cancer. You never know you have them and you can die as a 95 year old, perfectly fit and well, never knowing you had that. Or alternatively, it could be very small cancers that are so slow growing that even if you pick them up on the mammogram the following year or two years later, it doesn't really make a lot of difference to the patient's outcome in terms of what treatment they have or indeed whether they survive that cancer. And that leads to a problem that we call lead time bias, which means that you pick cancers up early, but you don't change the long-term survival. So all that happens is somebody knows they have cancer for an extra two years, but actually their ultimate survival is the same. So it's really important that we work out, can AI pick up aggressive cancers earlier, not just little things that won't do any harm? And we don't know that yet, you're right. Mm. And, you know, do you, in terms of that, do you see AI, um, you know, changing the uh, radiology industry or being used more in the future? Absolutely, I do. Um, both radiology and other um, similar things such as pathology, which again, where you have to look at large numbers of images. So anything where there's a lot of looking at a lot of images, um, which is 
quite a time consuming task and often you know prone to therefore people missing things and getting tired and and, and an enormous workforce commitment i think if we can teach a machine to pick up you know similar things to the human eye but then get not only the human eye but the human brain to work out if that's an important thing or not and that's what's really important ai doesn't replace people it can if you like be i don't know an extra arm or an extra pair of eyes if you like on top of us but it it doesn't have that ability to then really cleverly at the moment anyway and intelligently work out what that thing that's seen actually is or what it means yep and can you tell us the name of the software that that was being like the tool that was being used well, there's, I, I won't tell you that because, in fact, there's about four or five different softwares. Interestingly, there's one that's being developed right here in Victoria by a fabulous group based out of St. Vincent's and Breast Screen, Victoria, led by a very clever radiologist called Dr. Helen Fraser. And Helen is, along with her colleagues in AI and, and a group who are very interested in mammograms, have developed some remarkable software right here in Victoria as well, which they're now using in all of our our Australian breast screening patients. So uh, this study kind of got the one up on them, I suppose, by being published earlier um, out of Sweden. But there are a number of different softwares that are available around the world. Um, and I, I don't think anybody's yet put them head to head to see what one is better. So probably best if we leave the actual individual ones for the minute. Yeah, I see. That's, that's very interesting. And, um, you know, I can't wait to see what the different results are. Um, later on, but um, you also mentioned that radiology it's is a profession that's seeing a decline in the workforce due to you know people who are aging out and retiring. Um, are there any other causes to why the profession is in decline, and you know what could be done to ensure that cancer detection will be um, you know efficient and successful in the future? I wouldn't necessarily say the the radiology workforce is particularly in the decline, but the problem with with everything in medicine is that our, our population is growing, our aging population is growing. So there's more and more of us who need the services of health services, whereas the number of uh, doctors and other health professionals is not growing at the same rate. Breast radiology itself has always been, a, to be honest, a little bit of a Cinderella specialty in that it's not quite as um, hasn't been quite as popular as some of the other interventional radiology uh, subspecialties where there is a, a lot um, a lot of treatment of, of lesions done, such as neuroradiology or cardiac radiology. So breast radiology has often had a little bit more difficulty attracting the, the large numbers of, of very expert radiologists it needs. It's also something which takes years and years to become an expert at. But it's a it's a great career, um, a fascinating way of of not only looking at X-rays but actually treating patients because the radiologists do all the biopsies and have multidisciplinary discussions. It's a really it's a team sport, I would say. Um, but you can imagine if you could remove some of the more, I suppose, tedious aspects of a person's workday and let them concentrate on what was really um, more specialist things then probably you'd have a more satisfied workforce. And certainly um, you'd, you'd ease some of those workforce pressures. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Christabel. Um, it was such a pleasure in speaking to you. Is there anything else you'd like our audience to know? 
No, I think that's it. I think really just to say that the good news about this study and others is that for breast cancer, as for many cancers, survival is improving year on year um, and research is really the key to that. So uh, I'd like to just say how much I support science and how much I support research and it's great for people to get involved. And that was Professor Christabel Saunders, Chair of Surgery at Melbourne Uni's Breast Cancer Research Group. To read her article that was published in The Conversation and to find out more about the clinical trial to explore the use of artificial intelligence to improve breast cancer detection at St. Vincent's Hospital, you can head to our show at 3cr.org.au slash Wednesday dash breakfast. Thanks, Sonera. That uh, was a really good follow-up to the discussion we had last week on AI in healthcare and uh, breast cancer being such an important area for so many women. We're going to go to a song now, Goodbye by Wolf Tones. I could hear their voices calling As the plane rose in the sky I'd an aching heart and a tear in my eye When we said goodbye So good luck be always with you And be right by your side And take with you our love so true Let heaven be your guide So goodbye and oh I miss you My thoughts are always with you And we'll send you all our love Until we meet again So goodbye and keep on smiling Though the whole world might be sighing So from all of us, here's to all of you Good luck, farewell, goodbye So then wipe away those teardrops Come let me see you smile And there'll always be a welcome home When you return again It's so sad though we are parting Sure it's not forevermore So take with you our love so true Till we see you once more So goodbye and though I miss you My thoughts are always with you And we'll send you all our love Until we meet again So goodbye and keep on smiling Though the whole world might be sighing so from all of us, here's to all of you Good luck, farewell, goodbye So goodbye and keep on smiling Though the whole world might be sighing So from all of us, here's to all of you Good luck, farewell, goodbye 
You're listening to Community Radio. 3CR. 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 8.55 a.m. And that was Goodbye by Wolf Tones. We're now going to head over to Patrick, who's got a fascinating interview. Uh, we are now speaking to uh, Bree Ehrens from the North Northern Territory Environmental Centre regarding the Beetaloo Basin and the Middle Arm Gas and Petrochemical Hub. Uh, recently, the North uh, NT Chief Minister, Natasha Files, uh, labelled the project as a, a game changer to the economy, but also uh, slammed uh, southern states and teal independents for not backing the project in the federal parliament. Uh, Bree, welcome this morning. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. That's okay, Bree. Firstly, give me an idea of this project um, and, w- and why is it so controversial? So the Middle Arm Gas Hub and fracking in the Beedaloo, they're two technically separate projects mm-hmm. in different parts of the territory, but they're also highly dependent on each other to be viable and they both have pretty devastating implications for the climate the environment and public health. Um, Middle Arm, possibly your listeners would be less familiar with. It's a proposed 1,500 hectare project in the Middle Arm Peninsula, which is a peninsula that sticks out into Darwin Harbour, really close to town. And it's been designed by the Northern Territory Government as a new gas demand centre. Um, so the industry slated for Middle Arm include petrochemicals, more gas processing, critical minerals, and carbon capture and storage. Um, there are some examples of similar kind of industrial hubs and precincts like this around the world, and they've been pretty disastrous. Mm. Um, a similar precinct in Louisiana in the States has been dubbed Cancer Alley because of the implications it's had for public health over there. But this hub is fundamentally linked to another major gas project in the Territory, which people might be more familiar with, which is fracking in an area known as the Beetaloo Basin. Mm. The Beetaloo Basin is kind of wedged between um, Matarenka and Elliot, so that's south of Catherine, and then pushing out further east towards Borroloola. And it's poised to become Australia's first large-scale onshore shale gas fracking development. Mm. It hit the news recently because one of its major players, the Texan fracking company Tamboran, recently shipped over one of its first megafrackers or the first megafracker to be on site. I think it's the world's largest drill rig, if I'm not mistaken, Mm. and it has the capacity to drill four kilometres deep and then four kilometres across. Mm. So gas that's fracked from this site will be processed up here in Darwin at Middleham and Tamboran have already been granted land there to build an LNG facility. And, of Mm. course, all of this is being backed up by... $1.5 $1.5 billion in federal subsidies. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, Bree, because uh, the, one of the main uh, shareholders uh, in Brian Sheffield, uh, a Texans billionaire, in fact, Bree, uh, was up in Darwin speaking about how good this project's going to be for Darwin in terms of creating jobs, but also uh, for the territory and Australia's overall economy. Do you think the government is putting towards money before the environment now? Do you, do you see, we do see see these these projects are getting agreed on um, at the same time. They're asking us to, to, to try and minimise our uh, carbon footprint. Absolutely. I think the only winners from these projects will be those gas companies trying to get what money they can from a dying industry 
And it's the territory and its people that are being sacrificed in this process. There's very little to gain for the territory. Um, up here in Darwin, we've seen the boom and bust cycles that result from a dependence on these kind of mega oil and gas projects. Mm. And it doesn't give a solution to these uh, problems of employment and economic development that the government so frequently points to as a justification. It's just not the solution that we want to see. And what will happen instead is some really severe damage to our climate as well as the local environment and the health of people in Darwin. Yeah, and, and coming back to that environment and local uh, and local health, what what um, what could we see if, if this project goes along uh, in the due course? It's a big question because both the fracking and middle arm have quite distinct and really troubling implications. Mm. Um, what they share is that they are absolutely awful for the climate. So fracking in the beetle alone could increase Australia's greenhouse gas emissions by 22%. And we know that Middle Arm will facilitate a range of new gas projects at the very time we know we need to stop opening up new gas fields to avoid climate catastrophe. But it's probably worth giving a bit of context for your listeners in Nam for the local environmental impacts because they're really important too. Mm. Um, with regard to Middle Arm, that, the peninsula is in Larrakia country. Uh, and it's a site of real cultural significance. It's the site of the only Indigenous rock art to have survived colonisation in the Darwin region. Larrakia people have been custodians of that place for millennia, and they've not given their consent to the project, first mm. of all. Um, the peninsula itself is a really significant biodiversity area in Greater Darwin, and is actually one of the NT's key biodiversity areas. And the third thing to understand with respect to middle arm is to do with air quality. So we already have two LNG plants up here in Darwin and so already face some pretty shocking air quality problems. But ECNT, the Environment Centre at Northern Territory, commissioned a report last year by an American expert to kind of dig into what the broader middle arm development would mean for our air quality and consequently for human health. And the results of that report were quite frankly terrifying. Mm. Uh, it suggested that fine particulate emissions, which is stuff that really messes with our cardiovascular systems, could increase by 500%, and we could see a fourfold increase in the rate of industrial cancers. Mm. So that's middle arm in a nutshell. It's pretty grim. <laughs> yeah, it um, sounds sounds very grim, grim Breen. You just blow my mind with saying 500% uh, cardiovascular diseases in that space. Like, that's that's quite... Um, bonkers um, and in all seriousness I'm very surprised that this these two projects are going ahead given given this report has come out but also the public the public looking to it and going well hang on a minute uh, as I as I said in a previous question um, you know surely you'd have the environmental um, side of things covered before you went off and did these things Bri. I, I find it biggest belief in terms of government and it comes back to governments as well um, from a government point of view of going well, well surely you should be helping our constituents not um, these multi-million dollar companies. Yeah, that's right. So the environmental uh, assessment is currently sitting with Tanya Flipasek mm. as the Federal Environment Minister. But it is really concerning from a government's perspective that the federal government committed this $1.5 billion subsidy to Middle Arm before there was a business case, before we really knew any of the details. 
And I've seen personally as part of the No New Gas Coalition up here in Darwin, we've been doing uh, door-to-door surveys to try and work out what access to information the communities had and to try and take a read on the temperature regarding these projects. And recent surveys we did suggested that close to half of residents had insufficient information about the middle arm gas hub to be able to give an opinion one way or the other. Mm. Now, given given implications for their health, that's really concerning. So with middle arm, we're talking to give a sense of its proximity to populations, it's the centre of the middle arm gas hub will be less than three kilometres from some of the suburbs of Palmerston, which is a, a satellite city of, of Darwin. Mm-hmm. There was a, a study that was done, a meta-analysis um, of different research that found that people living within five kilometres of petrochemical facilities uh, had a 30% higher risk of developing leukaemia than those without exposure to petrochemical facilities. Mm, mm. And so middle arm, just to reiterate, is less than three kilometres from inhabited parts of Palmerston. Mm. It's not. It's not a good thing, Bree. In in my mind, the biggest belief that this project's going ahead. In terms of you're saying back to the community consultation space, and, yeah. and now and now you're telling now explaining our listeners and myself um, where this base base and it's going to be based out of the project itself, and only three kilometres from Palmerston and the, and the likes. Has the local media been quite critical of the project? It, it seems to me like it's only the only articles I'm getting is is from the big news information sites such as the ABC for the likes who've done some fantastic work in investigations into how the project was found and, and all the uh, in the microcosms of that but there hasn't been a lot of that questioning of um, uh, of the environmental impact in that space in other media avenues do you think it's getting kind of lost because uh, the people are kind of fearful of asking these questions given given labor's hold on uh, the the NT at the moment it has been tricky to discuss these things in a productive way here in the Territory. You might have seen recently that that stalemate situation led a convoy of Northern Territory doctors and parents to go to Canberra mm-hmm. um, to make their appeal directly to federal politicians who are ultimately responsible for the subsidy that is allowing middle arm to happen. Um, so some Northern Territory paediatricians wrote a letter that was subsequently signed by, I think, over a 1,000 doctors across Australia highlighting these urgent health risks. Um, And they also travelled down with parents um, from Darwin who were similarly concerned about the immediate impacts on the health of communities up here. And I think that they were driven to go down to Canberra because their attempts at having fruitful discussions with decision-makers here in Darwin... um, were being frustrated time and time again. We've mm. seen successive surveys have shown that the majority of uh, Territorians don't want fracking. That's been clear for a number of years. Um, as I said before, we don't. There's not enough community awareness around middle arm. Um, but despite these obvious um, community sentiments, the government is going full steam ahead, regardless. Mm, mm. Do do you think that uh, do you think the public has an opportunity to 
keep voicing their concerns and this is through activism or is this is this a thought that's coming to your mind Bree, in terms of what could be done to just to make it clear to the to those companies and government that um, we actually don't want this project yeah the community activism is really bubbling over up here in Darwin um, we we formed earlier this year a no new gas coalition as a coalition of different groups working on these issues as well as community members frustrated at the, the relentless gas expansion here in the territory and we've also seen um, greater engagement by our comrades and other organizations down south uh, particularly around middle arm and of course you would have seen in the news our chief minister natasha files disparaging that kind of southern involvement in territory issues. But I think for activists here in the territory, it's really well appreciated um, because, as I said, our attempts at, um, at, changing, at changing the course of gas expansion in the territory um, have been frustrated by the closed-door policy of a lot of decision-makers up here. Mm. So it's been really heartening to see um, environmentalists and activists across Australia really pick up this issue and start putting pressure on the federal government. Yes, yes. And do you think that the federal government might change their mind in the future, given given community sentiment is against the project? It's been interesting because with regards to Middle Arm, the Northern Territory government for a long time was trying to frame this development as a sustainable development, which is laughable really because it is fundamentally a gas hub. Um, but I think that they managed to convince you know, quite a few people in Canberra that it was truly a sustainable development. And as it's becoming more and more clear that the the gas hub is um, nothing other than a way to expand gas production in the Territory, I think that, you know, perhaps decision makers will start to have second thoughts about how appropriate it is for the federal government in 2023 to be subsidising gas expansion. So I think that we have a real opportunity to put pressure on the federal government um, with regards to that subsidy, and that's a key point um, of a potential for activism and pressure. I think. Mm, yes, Bray. And in terms of the the gas itself, is there been any question if that's going to come to Australia, or is that going to be exported like we've seen with other projects in WA and in Queensland? A lot of the gas. So when we're talking about Middle Arm mm-hmm. um, and broader LNG processing at Middle Arm. There's a lot of different, there's a few different gas uh, fields that feed into that, and a lot of that is for export. There's talk now that some of the fracked gas from the Beedaloo will be for domestic use. Um, but again, I don't think, in terms of meeting a domestic need, it's really dangerous to suggest that sacrificing the population of Darwin to meet a, a domestic retail need for gas is an appropriate solution to mm. a broader structural problem um, that really requires urgent and effective investment in, in sustainable and renewable energy. Yeah, spot on, Brie. I think uh, I, I actually agree with you on that one because I just I biggest belief why this project is even going ahead given we're in a position where the UN have called that it's climate boiling, not climate warming anymore and... Uh, we, we've seen uh, we've seen you know all the natural disasters which are occurring across uh, the north northern hemisphere and and in all frank they might come to Australia in the future. Bree, before you go, um, just if people want to um, jump on the website to North uh, to NT Environmental Centre, where can they go and um, how can they support the, the causes you do? Thanks, Patrick. So 
I'm a gas campaigner at the Environment Centre NT and there's more information available on all of these campaigns on our website at ecnt.org.au uh, and you can also look up the uh, No New Gas Coalition on Facebook to get updates from the broader community campaign against these projects. Perfect, Bree. Thanks very much for coming on. It was a great chat and um, I wish you best of luck with all your campaigns in the future and we'll watch this space because it's going to be a fascinating uh, watch in the coming months. Exactly right, Patrick. Thanks, Heath. That's all good. And that was uh, Bree Ahrens from the NT Environmental Centre discussing the controversial Beedaloo Basin and Middle Arm Gas Petro Hub project which is going ahead. Uh, at this stage, but could change in the future. And we're discussing the environmental impacts it could have on Darwin and the Northern Territory in a whole. That was uh, such a good explainer on all the important issues in that situation up there. Yeah, thanks for bringing us that. Yeah, it gets lost a little, I think. And it was a, it was interesting that the NT's Chief Minister's press conference and Tasha Files um, at, at National Cabinet got lost in a lot of other headlines across that week. And um, it's it's a fascinating space, Claudia, because uh, you know these issues up in the Northern Territory, unfortunately, they get lost by the mainstream media. But us us at Three CR do our best in, in giving the voice to the voiceless, as we keep doing. And uh, it's one issue that I really find fascinating, scenario and Claudia in that space. That's the I guess the joy of um, community radio. Definitely is. And independent media in general is that um, you know you can give yeah uh, more awareness to things that really do need more awareness but people don't seem to have the time or the funds or whatever for definitely definitely Mm. it's it's a tricky it's always tricky to try and get this story out or or other issues because if you don't then um you know as as she told me the community consultation process that's that's quite shocking and alarming that a situation Mm. that that is occurring like that you know that rate of uh, 500 times more likely to get leukemia i mean if if you don't listen to that, you just have to wonder, don't you? Definitely. Yeah. Well, that's all we've got time for in our show today. Thanks to all our guests for joining us and thanks to listeners for tuning in again. We will uh, see you next week. So uh, hang around now for Stick Together. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.